Well, uh, this morning we're continuing to look at uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, So if you want to, by all means, uh, keep your Bibles open at uh, the place of the first reading, page um, 55, um, Exodus 13, beginning at verse 17. And today's text is um, one of the most uh, extraordinary and one of the most exciting uh, in the whole Bible. Um, However, with respect to the story of Exodus, um, we we thought it was all over, didn't we? Uh, I mean, uh, for months now, there's been this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, and Moses had been demanding of Pharaoh that he let the Hebrews go. And Pharaoh had refused, and he kept on refusing. And we watched last year, when we read through Exodus chapters 4 to 10 last year, we we read as God sent nine miraculous signs, nine plagues of judgment against Egypt. The, The blood, the frogs, the gnats, flies, livestock diseases, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. And even Pharaoh's highest officials and ministers, they lost their patience with Pharaoh's stubbornness. And they said to him, Can't you see that Egypt is ruined? Let these people go that they might worship their God. But still, Pharaoh remained unmoved. Then there was the tenth plague, the plague against the firstborn. And all of Egypt mourned. Every household in Egypt lost at least one person. And Pharaoh's eldest son died. And during that night, the night of the Passover, Pharaoh summoned Moses and he said to him, Get up and get out! You Israelites, leave me and my people alone. Go worship the Lord as you've been demanding and take your flocks and your herds and go. And up they went out of a ruined Egypt, plundering the Egyptians as they went, for they asked for articles of gold and silver, and they were given them. And, and so out they went. And uh, God, we saw this last week, God gave them instructions um, about the firstborn, the consecration of the firstborn, and out they went. We, we thought it was all over. The exodus had happened. God had saved his people, the children of Jacob, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, just as he said he would do, And we thought it was over. But the most extraordinary was yet to come. And for me, this is actually, for me, this is actually a bit like one of those Hollywood thrillers. It's a little bit like a die-hard film or it's ilk. And, you know, at the end of the film, you think it's over because the baddies are all dead and the goodies have won. Then all of a sudden, no, actually, we only thought that this baddie was dead. Actually, somehow or another, he comes back to life and starts shooting people again. And it seems like everything's going to be lost until suddenly Bruce Willis's character saves the day by once and for all, making him completely dead rather than just mostly dead. Because it's like that here, isn't it? Suddenly, suddenly, it's back on with Pharaoh. The the narrative, uh, as with most ripping yarns, it it sets by moving swiftly through some various points to set the scene. 
that the narrator tells us a couple of things we need to know. He, firstly, he tells us some notes about geography. Now, the standard trade route between Egypt and the land of the Philistines, what we would today call southern Israel, it only took 11 days to walk. It was the coastal route, keeping close to the Mediterranean Sea, right at the north of uh, the, uh, the Arabic Peninsula. Um, so then, the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, they are only 11 days away from the land that God had promised their ancestors to give to them. But that route was heavily militarized. It was dotted with Egyptian barracks, and the Philistines were a very combative, adversarial, military kind of folk. They went to war a lot. And God saw that this little nation of ex-slaves was nowhere near ready for combat. And combat would be needed one day, but not for a long time. There was a lot of preparation that would need to be done before they were ready for combat. Forty years, actually, it would turn out. And we are told in verse 18 that the Israelites left Egypt armed, which is to say they actually had what they needed. In theory, they were ready for combat, but they were wrong. They were a long way from being ready for battle. So then, in view of these things, God led them around in circles for a few days. And they didn't go very far. It's comforting to think sometimes that when you're going around in circles, it might be because the Lord is leading you around in circles. God led them in circles for a few days. God was in charge and he was doing the leading. Now, nowadays, people aren't really entirely sure exactly where these places are, the place names that, that Yvonne read to us. No one really knows exactly where they are. The, the sea that's mentioned, it can be legi legitimately translated either the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, and you'll see a footnote to that effect in your pew Bible. The problem is that, is that for today, these two names suggest two different places. And there's an ongoing argument about which place is meant. Was it the, the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds? However, probably the insight that settles this argument is to, is to understand that, that in Moses' day, actually, the sea levels were different. In fact, they were a lot higher. Even today, you can go to the ancient city of Ephesus, which in Paul's day was a port city, but today is three kilometers from the beach. Sea levels were higher in Moses' day, and that means that the geography was slightly different. Um, and it is likely that the sea in question was the northern tip of the Red Sea, 10 or 20 kilometers across, but today, that same area is a system of large inland saltwater lakes and marshlands, the Sea of Reeds. But in biblical times, the Sea of Reeds and the Red Sea were actually literally the same thing, the, the northern tip of the Gulf of Suez. Well, this going around in circles might have been confusing for the Israelites, but God knew what he was doing. God knew that the report would quickly get to Pharaoh that the Israelites were indeed wandering around in circles and this would be all he needed to know, as God told Moses beforehand, because Pharaoh and the officials of Egypt would be suffering from a bad case of slave freer's remorse, which is a bit like 
buyer's remorse, only worse. Because they'd lost all that free labor. How would the economy, how could the economy possibly survive now? God told Moses that he himself would cause Pharaoh to strengthen in his resolve and that he'd go out after them. The second thing that we're told just in passing is that Moses takes Pharaoh's, sorry, Moses takes Joseph's bones with him. Joseph had died some 400 years earlier. He'd made sure that his bones were prepared and wrapped up. And we are told this so that we know there are people of faith in Israel and that Moses is a man of faith, carrying on the tradition of believing what God has to say and living differently in response, making plans on the basis of God's promises. You can trust, that is to say. You can trust and believe what God has to say. Joseph knew. Our descendants are going to end up in the promised land, so please take me with you. Um, I I think Joseph also demonstrates his, his, his trust that one day there'll be a resurrection of the dead. He believes that God is the God of the living and that he keeps his word. A third thing that we hear is that God is with them. Something extraordinary is communicated to us in a matter-of-fact way, but there you have it. Supreme Commander Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, was walking with them in a cloud. A cloud that was a pillar of cloud by day to give them shade and a pillar of fire by night to give them light. With them and in front of them to show them the way. And staggeringly, this situation continued for the next 40 years. This sign is extraordinary, but in actual fact, it's not unique. In actual fact, it is not unusual in the Bible for God to signal his presence by way of either flame or cloud, or both. The flame or the cloud, it is not God. In fact, it hides his face, so to speak, a mystery that will be revealed later, but it signals that he's there in a real, personal, manifest presence kind of way. Sure, God is everywhere all the time, but here he is in a special way, personally, manifestly present. And this sign reminds us, it's a good illustration, I think, of the fact that God doesn't promise guidance, but he does promise a guide. God usually gives guidance, but not always. But what God does promise is to be with us and to guide us even when we don't get the guidance, which is fantastically good news because it means my ability to end up where God wants me to be is not dependent upon my ability to read maps. I may not get the guidance as obvious as that God can make, but still God will guide me because God promises. He often gives guidance, but he doesn't promise guidance. He promises a guide who is himself. He will go with his people. And what comes next is a reasonably detailed description of Pharaoh mobilizing his troops. We are told that Pharaoh literally harnessed both his chariot and harnessed his people. He brings out his entire army. 
This includes chariots, mounted troops, foot soldiers, generals, and 600 choice chariots, as they are literally described. In the NIV, that's 600 of the best chariots, but literally it's 600 choice chariots. Now, I'm not sure what a choice chariot is and how that differed from a normal chariot. Maybe there were four horses out, of the, out the front rather than two. But here's what you've got to know about chariots. Um, this is the late Bronze Age. Iron is only just making an appearance, and these chariots are the super weapon of the age. Only the richest governments have them. Just, these, are the nuclear, these are the nuclear missiles of, of this time. Foot soldiers can't stand up to chariots. Chariots just mow them down. Israel doesn't have any chariots. It doesn't even have normal chariots, let alone 600 choice chariots. Egypt is the global superpower of its time, and it has 600 choice chariots. And Pharaoh goes out in pursuit, mobilizing his entire army in all of its divisions. Meanwhile, we are told in verse 8, the Israelites continue to walk about with, literally, hand held high. In other words, confidently. But this confidence is about to vaporize. I'm going to read from verse 9 in my own translation. If you'll excuse me, by all means, read along in your pew Bible. Verse 9. And the Egyptians chased after them, and they overtook them at the camp by the sea. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and the horsemen and all his army by Pi of Hiroth before the face of Baal Zephon. And Pharaoh came near, and the sons of Israel lifted their eyes, and look, Egypt traveling after them. And they were very afraid. And the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh. And they said to Moses, was it because there weren't any graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the desert? What is this that you've done to us? bringing us out of Egypt. Is this not the very thing we said to you in Egypt, saying, go away from us and let us serve the Egyptians because it is good for us to serve the Egyptians compared to dying in the desert? And it is, of course, extraordinary. What's happening is extraordinary because it seems on face value that Israel doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell. I mean, let's look at their situation. On the one side, we have Pharaoh and his army, the greatest military force the world had ever seen. Countless chariots, 600 super chariots, foot soldiers, cavalry, generals. All of this coming against a small little nation of recently freed slaves who, for a generation, have known almost nothing except mud and straw and brick molds. They haven't even had to decide for themselves when to start or stop work. They've been slaves. They are weak and incompetent. They couldn't organize a milkshake in a dairy. And on the other side, there is the sea. Now, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the sea, in Hebrew thought, represents evil. The type of evil that the sea represents is very different to the type of evil that is represented by, for example, by Satan. Um, There is in this universe personal, intelligent, self-conscious, malevolent evil in the world. In our text today, 
this type of evil is represented by Pharaoh and his army. They are out to kill people. And they are hell-bent as a decision of their wills on rebelling against God's revealed will and destroying God's people. They have decided. They have decided to do their best to stop God's plan. Personal evil. But the sea is also evil. It is impersonal, unthinking, not self-conscious, yet nevertheless it is random, chaotic, anti-life. The Hebrews, they took to water like your average house cat. And to them, the sea represented all that was random and chaotic and impersonally against life in the world in which we live. Chance, random, horrible things happen. That is the tahu wobahu spoken of in Genesis chapter 1, the randomness and chaos. And it's represented in Hebrew thought by the sea. So on the one hand, go to Pharaoh and die a quick, violent death. On the other hand, the sea is cold and dark and wet and its appetite is insatiable and it will overwhelm you and it will make you equally dead. These two great evils, front and back, Pharaoh and the sea, caught between a rock and a hard place, out of the frying pan into another frying pan. How on earth will they get out of this one? It beggars the imagination. Surely they are now toast. But what is actually about to happen is that God is going to demonstrate his full sovereignty over all of the forces of evil in this world, both the personal and the impersonal. He is fully in charge of it all. The Israelites, a people of faith, God's people, they do two things which are good and one thing which is bad. A good thing that they do is that they cry out to God in prayer. That's always a good thing to do. Secondly, they express their fears to God's servant openly, fulsomely, honestly. That is also always a good thing to do. The bad thing that they do is that they do not combine this with faith. They don't remember or trust God's word. They don't remember his promises. That they should know that God has promised to bring them into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jesuits, etc., etc. What is this like? It's, it's, it's like a bunch of men who've seen miracles and heard this brilliant sermon on just how the kingdom of God is going to change the world. And then they get into a little boat and there's a storm and they say, Master, don't you care if we drown? Have they forgotten? that the kingdom of God is going to change the world? Um, have they forgotten the miracles? Do they think that this entire kingdom of God project is going to be swamped by a wave and end up at the bottom of a lake? Jesus is right to say to them, why do you still have no faith? And that's what the people are displaying here. It's called faithlessness. Now, now I've got some good news. Faithlessness amongst those who don't belong to God, leads eventually to their destruction. Faithlessness amongst those who do belong to God leads to being chastised and disciplined, rebuked, 
taught, encouraged, until they do have faith. Because they're not saved by faith, they're saved by grace. And they have to learn faith. And God is going to patiently teach it to them. And they're going to learn faith by the end of this episode. We're going to see it happen. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Take your stand, and you will see Yahweh's saving work that he will do for you today. Because those Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. Not ever. Yahweh will fight for you. And you yourselves will be silent. Um, This paragraph is full of uh, extremely strong um, uh, language um, that's difficult to translate into English. The first phrase, um, which is rendered, do not be afraid, uh, is a very strong negative imperative. Uh, Do not be afraid is a faithful translation, but the force of it is stop being frightened. In English, it looks like comforting words. It's not comforting words. It's a rebuke. Stop being frightened. Um, Of course, a rebuke from a righteous man is always comforting uh, because it gets you on the straight and narrow again. So you can't separate comfort from rebuke, but it's a rebuke. Stop being frightened. Um, And verse 15, And Yahweh said to Moses, What is this crying out to me? Speak to the sons of Israel and let them set out. And you are to lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and split it. And let the sons of Israel come in the midst of the sea by dry ground. And I myself, look, I'm strengthening the heart of the Egyptians and letting them come after them. And so I will be glorified by Pharaoh and by all his army, by his chariots and by his horsemen. And Egypt will know that I myself am Yahweh when I am glorified by Pharaoh, by his chariots and by his horsemen. And the angel of God, the one walking before the face of Israel's camp, set out and he went behind them. And the pillar of cloud set out from in front of them, and he stood behind them. And he went between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And through the night, the cloud was both darkness and light. And no one came near the other all through the night. Well, the Lord is with them. He puts himself between his people and his enemy. He is not only a guide, he is also a guard. He does indeed command them to set out and move into the sea. But he sends his servant Moses before them. Here we see that Yahweh, the the personal name of God himself, is used interchangeably with the title, the angel of God. And we we see that it takes a night. There's a time of waiting and prayer and stalemate for God to put his plan into effect. Sure, it's a miracle, but it takes an evening and it reminds me that reminds me once again faith is often faith is usually demonstrated by a willingness to wait now in our age academics and theologians argue about whether the parting of the red sea whether it was a miracle or whether it can be explained by 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 things which appeal only to the natural sciences whether natural phenomena can explain the division, 
um, actually the argument is pointless because God is Lord of sea and sky. Um, and his miracles, he usually uses means. Miracles usually use means. Stuff. God, God does miracles through things, be it spittle or mud or wind. Um, so was this miracle a miracle or was it a natural phenomenon? Well, both, obviously. Naturally, it was a miracle because God is the Lord of nature. Let's read more detail about it. Verse 21, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh caused the sea to go by a mighty east wind all through the night. And he made the sea like dry land, and the water was cleaved in two. And the sons of Israel came in between the seas on dry land. And the waters were to them a wall on the right-hand side and a wall on the left-hand side. And the Egyptians gave pursuit. And they went after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, into the midst of the sea. And so it was, during the dawn watch, Yahweh looked at the camp of the Egyptians from in the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw the camp of the Egyptians into confusion. And he turned aside the wheels of their chariots, and they drove them with difficulty. And Egypt said, let us flee from before the face of Israel, because Yahweh is fighting for them against Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, and let the waters return over the Egyptians, over his chariots, and over his horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned, returning at dawn in its strength. And the Egyptians fled to meet the dawn. But Yahweh threw Egypt into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh and all those coming after them into the sea. Not a single one of them remained. And the sons of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea and the waters were to them a wall on their right and a wall on their left. And Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of Egypt. And Israel saw Egypt dead on the shore of the sea. And Israel saw the great hand that Yahweh had made against Egypt. And the people feared Yahweh and they trusted in Yahweh and in Moses, his servant. Um, well, uh, it's an extraordinary text. Um, how does this relate to us? Um, in so many ways. Uh, we are God's people. Um, where can we start? Uh, firstly, uh, in the presence of evil, trust God to save you because he will. Secondly, God routinely calls us to engage with evil. And he sometimes leads us to a place where we are surrounded by evil. He does this in order that he might be glorified as the one who is totally, sovereignly in charge over all the forces of evil. Spiritual warfare, engaging with evil, spiritual warfare begins with the decision to stop being frightened or at least to stop responding to the fear 
and deciding to stand. To stand means to keep on trusting God and believing his word even in the presence of overwhelming evil. And evil can be overwhelming, can't it? I mean, it frequently is. Just listen to the news over the last 48 hours. Um, Evil is overwhelming because it is a heck of a lot bigger than us. But it's not bigger than God. In fact, it's minuscule compared to the power of God. To stand means to keep on trusting God and to keep on trusting that God is totally in charge, totally in control, totally loving, totally powerful, totally able to save, totally at work in this situation for his glory and honor as we stand in faith. Faith often means waiting. But God promises not to push our patience beyond that which we can bear. And God will save us. Watch and you will see today the way that God, the, the way that God will work to save you. Um, it's just such a fantastic verse to memorize. Watch and see how God will save you today. Um, something that I think about a, a lot is the fact that sometimes God's salvation path will take us through the sea and not over it or around it. Um, when we ask God to save us from our fears, he will. Um, Most of the time, when we are faced with suffering, God saves us from our suffering. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he saves us through our suffering. Sometimes he saves us through the sea. I don't know why he does that, uh, but we can always ask him. Uh, And in my experience, he has always told me when he has chosen to save me through suffering rather than around it. He has always told me why he's doing this. So, so, so we are saved through trials, not around them. A righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord will deliver him from them all. Um, being still is an exercise in faith. It doesn't necessarily mean inactivity, But what it does mean is not doing the thing that a person who was faithless would do in order to try to save themselves. Israel, when they're still, is still actually marching. But they're walking in obedience to God's command. Being still is, in whatever situation you might find yourself confronted by evil, being still is not doing what the faithless faithless person would automatically do in that situation. This text uh, helps us to remember God is with us. He is with us in the power of his Holy Spirit. When, when a person believes in Jesus, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's God's fire. That's God's flame. That's God's presence in your heart. God is with us. Um, what is faithlessness? Well, Pharaoh believes in God. He even believes in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews. Uh, He regularly wants to be blessed by God, as so many people do. But there's no faith, and there's no repentance, and his faithlessness will kill him. Um, He repents. that There is repentance. What he repents of is he repents of obeying God. 
and he changes his mind. That's why he's going after the slaves, because he repents of obeying God. Um, And it leads to his destruction. The Israelites are learning to have faith. They are not saved by faith. They are saved by grace, and God is teaching them to trust him. Beautifully, this passage pictures the fact that evil will destroy itself. That is one of the great promises of the Bible. Evil is self-destructive. There's a lot of it in the world, but evil ultimately will destroy itself. (laughs) It's just such a beautiful picture, actually. Personal evil being engulfed in impersonal evil. Pharaoh actually drowning in the sea from a Hebrew perspective is an image of extraordinary irony. Evil destroying itself, evil being destroyed by evil. And what do we find in the book of Revelation? The city of Babylon will fall into the sea. And when the new heaven and the new earth come, there will be no sea. Um, Evil is inherently self-destructive. All we need to do is stand and be still. And lastly, um, uh, this is all about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Uh, Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians. This passage is about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. Um, uh, Jesus is our saviour. Uh, He has saved us. We begin by being saved. We begin by being freed. Our life on earth is spent learning faith, learning to trust him and to be his people in the presence of sometimes overwhelming evil. And insofar as we trust him, we glorify him because everything, one way or the other, will glorify the Lord God Almighty. Amen.